hear the words of the Lord from John 20, 19-31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, was one of the twelve. One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen him and have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Faith and doubt. They're part of life, aren't they? We're used to them all the time. Maybe this was something like your house this morning, you know. You woke up next to your spouse and your wife said, I hope we're going to have a great sermon. And the husband said, I doubt it. <laughs> Maybe you use it today just trying to get your kids to the service. That takes a tremendous amount of faith looking at trying to get them out the door. We all exercise faith and doubt. If you doubt me, and you were never asked a girl out on a date before, you have a lot of faith, but you also have a lot of doubt. Girls may be accepting it, a little bit of faith, maybe a lot of doubt. See, faith, according to the scriptures, is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. The doubt would be the exact opposite, right? Not being sure of what we hope for, and uncertain of what we do not see. We want to live in a world where there's not faith and doubt, where we can see and understand everything empirically, but the simple fact of it is that's not the way it works. We live with faith all the time. Relationships are built on faith. A mutual trust between friends and spouses and kids. We live, in fact, our money is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States of America, where faith is becoming more and more doubt concerning the value of our currency. We live by faith in the way we drive. That that person is going to stay over there with their suburban and they're not going to run into me with my little mini car on this road. We exercise it all the time. Sometimes we don't have a choice but to live by faith. I don't know if you remember uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, my family and I, we went to New York City. Uh, we had a great time. And, you know, part of New York City is just trying to figure out the subway, which is unbelievably complicated, particularly on the weekends, where they have these unspoken rules about how everything changes. And we don't know anything about it. So we're hopping from place to place trying to get there, me and my wife and our four children. And uh, along comes a train, and this one's pretty packed. But we know we got to get on it. 
Okay, so I get my wife and a couple other kids over here, and they're fine. And then I have my other two kids, and I've got Will, but we all can't fit. So I push Will into one spot, and I say, stay there, and I move to the next spot. But there's no room for me and my other kid. And so, lo and behold, there the door is shut. And there goes Will, right down the path. <laughs> now, my wife is somewhere way down on the other side of the train. She has no idea he's on there. And I'm thinking to myself, I just put my son on a subway train in New York City. And if he doesn't get off on the next station, he's toast. But I had a lot of trust in my son. He, he, he has a lot of uh, uh, smarts to in terms of staying safe. And I had a lot of faith that he's going to get off. But I had a little bit of doubt as well. Because if he did not get off, I had no idea how we were going to track down my son. But well done. He got off and the family stayed together. You know, there's no word that we have faith and doubt more than in religion. Religion, we used to live in an age of faith, but really people would say that we live now in an age of skepticism. The only thing certain about life is uncertainty. It was the infamous skeptic Bertrand Russell who was asked if he ever got to see God, what he would ask him. And Russell said, I would ask him, sir, why did you not give me more evidence? I think maybe that's a little bit of why we love Doubting Thomas, because we can identify with him a little bit. Because what are Thomas's words? Everyone else is believing, and Thomas says, well, unless I can put my fingers into his hands and touch his side, I will not believe. But it's interesting how Jesus responds to Thomas, isn't it? He rebukes him. He said, stop doubting and believe. You have seen, and because you see, you believe. But blessed are those who believe even when they have not seen. And so what I want to discuss today is this question for you and for me. What is our threshold of faith? Where does our life, our decision, our faith in Christ move from doubt to faith? Because like Thomas and the disciples, we all must walk to the empty tomb on this day called Easter. And we must try to make sense of what happened there and what it means for us today. The scriptures tell us that all these things that we're reading were written so that you may believe and have eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying is you have enough information to believe and have faith in me. But belief does not come through exercising sight. It comes through exercising faith. If you choose to see with sight, you will never see Jesus. But if you choose to see with eyes of faith, you will see him right in front of you. There are three things we're going to look at. Number one, the evidence for our faith. What sort of evidence have we been provided with that we can have faith in this one called Jesus? Number two, the object of our faith. Exactly what are we being asked of to put faith in? Is the object suitable? And number three, the joy of our faith. What comes when we make this decision to take the evidence to move it on to the object of our faith and to believe? Because belief does not come through exercising sight, it comes through exercising faith. Well, let's look at this first point, the evidence for our faith. What I just read to you is pretty much the last story in the book of John. There's a little postscript at the end there where Jesus is working on his relationship with Peter, but this is really the last story. And John is putting together these stories, and clearly there is a reason. You know, if you were going to finish the story... You know, you, as you arrange material, you want to leave them with the point of the story. And the point of the story is actually wrapped up in this story, John. Uh, this section here at the end of John with Thomas. So let's look at it. Verse 19. 
19th, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now notice the doors are locked up. Why? Because they are in fear. Their master has been killed, publicly made a spectacle of. There's probably a hunt going on for the rest of the people who are part of this gang of disciples. And so they're in hiding, locked in an upper room for fear of the Lord. And Jesus comes into their midst and says, Peace be with you. Shalom to you. Now I'm sure the disciples were frightened. Thus the, the need for Jesus to come and say, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then it says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. See, in the midst of their fear in this upper room, Jesus comes. And he shows them himself. Look, I'm not a ghost. And when the disciples saw him, they saw his wounds, they were glad because they had seen him. I'm sure they were overjoyed because all of their hopes that had been dashed were renewed in this one called Jesus. But there was one who was not with them, Thomas. Now why he was not with them, I, I don't have a clue. He just wasn't, it doesn't say. But in verse 24 it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Can you imagine Thomas walking into the room? And there's bedlam and pandemonium going on. And these people turning to Thomas and they're saying, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And indeed, that term in the Greek, seeing the Lord is in a tense, which basically means he's alive forever. It's not a flash thing. It's a new thing has occurred. He is back. He is risen. But amidst all of this excitement, Thomas brings his skepticism. Unless I see his hands and place my finger into the nails, I will never believe. See, Thomas comes with his own set of conditions, doesn't he? Unless I see Unless I do this, I will never believe. I'm sure his buddies must have been flummoxed. Because here they are, all ten of them, saying the same message to this person who they've spent three years of their life with. And who they've all heard these promises from Jesus that he would rise again. And yet, they're telling him that, and he's not getting it. In fact, this went on for eight days, the scripture says. Every day, the disciples waking up, being excited, and looking at Thomas to refuse be apart. Verse 26, eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your hands here and see my hands. Put out, uh, and, and place, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You know, how was it that Jesus even knew Thomas' issues? I don't know. But I love the fact that he does for Thomas what he requests. Here, see for yourself. And what's Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now the question for me is that Jesus rebukes uh, Thomas for his lack of faith. But is that fair? See, the three groups before him who have believed... All believed because they saw Jesus. There was Peter and John who looked into the grave and it was empty and they believed. There was Mary Magdalene that Jesus called her by name and thus because she saw him she believed. 
There were the apostles who saw and they believed. So what's wrong with Thomas not saying, I want the exact same thing? See, what Jesus was rebuking Thomas for was not faith without evidence, but rather faith without sight. See, never in the New Testament is faith ever juxtaposed against reason or evidence. Nowhere in the New Testament does it ever say to check your brain at the door or reason at the door when you are looking at this one called Jesus Christ. Indeed, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind. What Jesus is saying is rebuking Thomas for his faith, lack of faith in the midst of evidence. You ever thought about there are only two ways that we really learn something, is there? The first is by our senses. You know, the sense, we touch something, we taste it, we see it for ourselves, we feel it, we, we recognize it empirically. But the other way that we learn and acquire knowledge is through the reliable testimony of other credible witnesses. We were at Times Square a couple weeks ago. I'd never been to Times Square in my life. At least I thought I'd never been, maybe when I was a small kid. I can't remember. Now, I'd seen Times Square. Okay, I was sure it was true because Dick Clark guaranteed every rocky New Year's evening that it was true. And they painted this beautiful picture of this place called Times Square. But at the end of the day, I'd never seen it. So I had to take it on faith that it existed until I finally went to Times Square and I stood there in amazement at the place and saw for myself, yes, indeed, it's true. Some of you who are a little bit older remember when the Gemini spacecraft went up uh, 850 miles above the Earth and were able for the first time to see the curvature of the Earth. No one had ever really seen it before. They had been able to map it out. It was unquestioned in scientific circles, but no one had ever seen it before. There was reliable testimony, but now here were the astronauts taking pictures and showing what was true. And even then, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the curvature of the Earth. I haven't either. But in the face of this reliable testimony, it would be foolish not to believe that the earth is curved, wouldn't it? See, what Jesus is rebuking Thomas for is his lack of faith in credible testimony. The very ten people, remember Judas was gone, that stood with him, that are proclaiming to him the message, and he refuses to believe. See, here's the postscript. This is the message John is communicating to us. Look at 20, verse 20, 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our ground of faith is not in ourselves, but rather in the apostolic witness of these ones that Jesus gave the message to give to us. The ground of our faith is not our eyes, but rather our faith in Christ and his messengers. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal had an answer for Bertrand Russell. Pascal believed that there is sufficient evidence to any honest seeker who seeks after God with all their heart. He writes, Willing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart, and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart, God so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given indications of himself which are visible to those who seek him, and not to those who do not seek him. There is enough light for those to see who only desire to see, and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. What is your standard of faith? 
today on Easter Sunday? Is it that of Thomas? You've always considered yourself a bit of a standoffish person, a skeptic when it comes to these things of the supernatural. Tendency to doubt in these old wives' tales about people rising from the grave. You need to be able to see, to touch, to taste, to feel. And so you ask the question, well, Jesus, why didn't you show yourself to all of us? Why don't you show yourself to us today? I'll believe if I see you. But the truth of the matter is, you won't. Jesus even said in certain sections that people will not believe in me even if they see me raise people from the dead. Why? Because their heart does not want to believe. We have been given the testimony from this group of nobodies, uneducated, who followed this nobody, who said he was the Son of God, who rose up, who showed himself to 12 people, over 500 people over a period of 40 days, and stopped. I've never seen Jesus Christ before. But as I look around the world and I see the credibility of the testimony, and I see this person, Jesus Christ, and what he has done in transforming the world, there's not one person out there that would not tell you that the most influential person who has ever walked the face of the earth is Jesus Christ, whether they like him or hate him. This one, I can see the testimony. And the truth of the matter is that if I want to see Jesus Christ, I must come with no conditions other than faith and reason. If I come with my conditions like Thomas, I'll never see him. But if I open my heart, if I put my conditions on the ground, and rather I say that yes, I will see with faith and reason, you know what? You will see him. Because belief does not come through exercising sight. It comes through exercising faith. If you choose to see with eyes of sight, you'll never see him. But if you choose to see with eyes of faith, you'll see him right in front of you. We have good evidence for our faith. But what about point two, the object of our faith? Now I'm going to say something a little risky here, but I think it's true. In one section, one aspect, Thomas is a very bad example of faith. But on the other example, he's a very, on the other aspect, he is a very, very good example. Now what do I mean? What do I mean is that Thomas has a twofold job in Christianity. He is not only a believer, but he's an apostle. Okay? He's being rebuked for Thomas the believer. Believe, even when you don't see him. But he's not being rebuked as the apostle. Because what Thomas is actually saying about needing to see Jesus is quite accurate and quite true. Now what do I mean by that? Who are these apostles? Now, many of us know them. They're the 12 people that Jesus picked to walk alongside, to bear witness to him. They slept where he was, they ate where he was, they even helped perform some of the miracles through him. And the word apostello literally means to send. And Jesus said, if you look at verse 21, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And notice how he commissions them. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, now we know that there's only one who can forgive sins alone. Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying that I will give you the testimony of who I am the gospel, the good news. And by your testimony, those who believe in the gospel will have forgiveness for their sins. And those who do not believe will not have forgiveness for their sins. You are the witnesses. And so for 40 days, I don't know if you noticed, 
For 40 days after Jesus rose, Jesus spent time with these disciples, telling them more about the kingdom of God, explaining to them what had happened all through his life. But there was a critical aspect of being an apostle. Remember where Judas, gone, okay, he went and he hung himself, he was a false apostle, and so they had to elect another one. The book of Acts, they're trying to figure out, you know, who do we elect? And this is what it says in Acts 121. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time of the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must uh, become with us a witness of his resurrection. Now why is that so important? Couldn't he just get someone who'd never seen Jesus, maybe? He was a, a person that walked with them or that heard about him. No, he actually had to see the resurrected Christ. Why? Because the message of Christianity is not Jesus' teachings. The message of Christianity is Jesus himself. The object of our faith is a person. Christianity is not a religion. It's a person. See, why it's so important to see the risen Jesus is because the centrality of Christianity is Jesus' life, not his teaching. As best as experts can tell us, the book of John only... Uh, shows 21 days of his life. That's it. He ministered for three years, but the book of John is only on 21 days of his life. The last 20 days of his life. The last three weeks. And John is communicating this importance of this one, Jesus, who died and had to rise. Now, you won't find this difficulty with other religions. And I mean no disrespect to any other religion. But truth be told, it has absolutely no bearing on that religion, whether that prophet rose or not. Because everything with other religions has to do with the advice that the prophet gave. Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. It's not something that you and I have to do. It's about something that he's already done. Christianity is not about us. It's about him. Now this really drives modern commentators crazy. Because the message of modernity with Christianity is, hey, can we take out all of this supernatural stuff? I mean, he was a great teacher, and if we follow his teachings to love one another, to uh, love our enemies, to lay down our life, that's what's important. Now, how good would that have done for these disciples who were up in a, a locked room? Hey, love your enemies. That sounds like a great idea. Do you think the Romans will reciprocate? Absolutely not. And yet 40 days later, these people who ran, who gave Jesus up, are standing in the middle of the square where he was condemned, proclaiming Jesus Christ is risen from the dead in the midst of the Roman soldiers and the people that shouted to crucify him, saying that we have seen the Lord, he is risen, repent and believe the good news. Where does that courage come from? That boldness, it comes from the object of faith that is a living person. See, without a transformed Jesus, how can we be transformed? With just his teaching, how can life be different? Some of you may have heard of uh, uh, the chaplain named Michael Judge. I got to learn about him for the first time in New York. We went to the 9-11 memorial. And uh, civilian casualty number 0001 was Michael Judge. He was a, a chaplain for the fire department. And Michael Judge, he, he saw what was going on, and he ran to the, the World Trade Center... And Giuliani was actually already there. And he, and he told uh, uh, Father Judge,
judge to start praying for these people. Well, the chaplain runs into the, uh, the North Tower, okay, and he's there in the ground floor, and he's, he's praying for people, he's trying to, you know, help with the rescue, all that sort of stuff, and then the other tower comes down, and it hits part of this tower, and chaplain is the first guy to be killed, the number one civilian casualty. And they have video of it actually happening, this man dying. You know, I thought to myself, where does one get the courage to live that kind of life? Where does one get the courage that their belief actually turns into the way that they live? It's easy to say love your enemies, isn't it, until they're right in front of you. How do I find the courage to love my spouse when she's not very lovable? And I'm not either. Where do I find the courage to be the man, the father that my children deserve? Where do I find the courage to do the right thing when everything in society tells me to do the wrong thing? I don't need good teaching, my friends. I need something more than that. I need a living object of my faith. Jesus Christ is Christianity. Without the resurrection, my advice for you is to go find something else. Because the scriptures tell us that if Christ is not risen, your faith is useless, and you are in your sins. But Christ has been raised. How do I know? The transformation of these people and the transformation that God is doing in people all around the world today. Belief does not come through exercising sight. It comes through exercising faith. If we choose to see Him just with eyes of sight, we'll never see Him. But if we choose to see Him with eyes of faith, we'll see Him right in front of us. We have an object of faith worth putting our hope in, the man, Jesus Christ. This brings me to the last point, the joy of our faith. We've talked about evidence. We've talked about the object of our faith. Now I want to talk about the joy of our faith. You know, how Jesus identifies himself, it's really quite amazing when you think about it. It says here in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, when the disciples were there, it was locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad. You know, I thought to myself, you know, if I were going to do this, if I was the person showing that I had come back from the dead, I would have done it totally different. Okay? I would have, you know, boom, and the rocks, you know, just spread, and I kind of walk in, and, I, you know, I'm wearing the robes, and here I am! No, Jesus just walks in, and he says, you know how you know that I am who I am? Take a look. Hands my side. There's nothing flashy about that. There's nothing spectacular. And yet, here are the disciples overjoyed. What's the big deal about this? See, I think this is why it's such a big deal. You know, why would Jesus keep these wounds? I mean, they're symbols of shame, aren't they? What these people did to him. The King of Kings, who now is alive. You know, who's been cleaned up, who's in this resurrected physical body. And then the first thing that Jesus shows, the very wounds. See, wouldn't it have been better for Jesus to say, look, guys, I, I know that this happened between us, but we're going to forget about that, okay? Past is past, now it's now, we're going to move on. Now, Jesus' calling card is the very hands that were pierced and the very side that was pierced by the sword. See, what Jesus kept them is he wants to communicate to his people, I love you. You know what? I had to do this for yourself. And you know what? I wanted to do it too. And because of this, peace be with you. Peace be with you and me. See, the reason that the disciples can look on him and be overjoyed is they realize that 
to rescue them. Not to indict them, but to save them. He is our Lord and our Savior. See, why do you think Thomas had to see the woman so bad? You think about that? Why do you think, well, I could just see him. I'm going to see the wounds. I think the one to see the wounds is he wanted to know, are things still okay between you and me? Because truth be told, I was the one that ran, just like everyone else. And even if you were alive, why would you ever want to see me? See, we have that same kind of question, don't we? It's easier to kind of keep a little distance from Jesus Christ. Except maybe on Easter when we get a little uncomfortably close. Rather stay on the inside of the locked door. Worship Him from a distance. But Jesus comes into our midst. And he says, look, here I am. I had to die for you. Oh yeah, I wanted to as well. Never shows that Thomas ever touched his side in the nails. He just looked at him. He said, my Lord, my God. And he worshiped. If we want to see Jesus Christ, there's only one way we're going to see Him. We're going to see Him by His wounds. There's only one way we're going to see it, not by ourselves, but our, our faith. Now you may say, look, Carlos, I don't have any place in my heart for a God like that. I want a big God. I want a shiny God. I don't want a dented God. I don't want a gourd God. Give me someone beautiful that I'll bow down to. But that's not our God. Our God is a God that says, I love you. This much. Come, peace be with you. Jesus says, I want a relationship with you where the bond between you and I is not fear, but love. And what joins us together is not feeling, but faith. The message of Easter is this. You cannot live the way that God wants you to. And you don't have to. Because Jesus Christ has died for your sin and is alive and living and wants to come into your heart to give you forgiveness and new life and purpose. For just as the Son has the ability to take His life down and bring it up, He has the ability to give life to you as well. But belief in this God will not come from exercising sight. It only comes through exercising faith. If you choose to see with eyes of sight, you'll never see Him. But even today, if you choose to see with eyes of faith, you'll see Him right in front of you. And you too, like the disciples, will say, By faith I have seen the risen Lord. We'll see, we'll believe, and we'll worship. That is the hope of Easter. It's my hope. It's your hope. It's the hope for anyone. For a God that loves us enough to die for us. Let's pray. These things were written, Lord that we might know that you are the Son of God. You have given us the testimony of the apostles who were with you. You have the very words of life, and here they are in the scriptures for us to see that we might believe. Lord, help us to come to you with no conditions other than faith and reason. Lord, take away our skepticism, and rather give us hope, a willingness to step out of our comfort zone. Lord, our hope and our desire is for you. We don't need better teaching. We don't need better philosophy. We need a risen God. We cannot live this life of faith without you. So meet us. Show us your stars. Help us to see your love for us. And that you retain your love and forgiveness even amidst your resurrection, Lord. And like the disciples, help us to be overjoyed.
to be able to walk out of this room back to our house and to say to our friends, our family, and neighbors, we have seen the risen Christ. And may we be transformed, Lord. And through being transformed together, may we transform this We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.